Welcome to North Liberty Library's Love, Light, and Lit, the podcast, a series of universal talks gently guided by open hearts and open minds. Listen to ignite the light in you and to appreciate the light in others. Hello, I'm Kelly with North Liberty Library, and I thank you for joining us today on Love, Light, and Lit, the podcast. You can also catch Love, Light, and Lit on Facebook Live every Monday at 12 noon Central Time. Be sure to follow North Liberty Library on Facebook to get notifications. The concept of a family game night is familiar to most households, a time when relatives get together to relax with some good-natured competition tossed in. Many of us grew up in homes where a deck of cards, a board game, or these days, an interactive virtual reality experience brought the people we love most together to bond and have fun. Today's guest posed some vital questions about gaming in her recent blog post. What if a family is not comfortable with speaking or reading English? How do games fit into their lives? Annabelle Blackman discovered modern board gaming eight years ago when her child was gifted Candyland at three years old. Within a few months, they moved on to more advanced games, and she quickly observed how easily her child incorporated dramatic play into every game. Being a children's librarian, Annabelle realized board games facilitate SEL and language and literacy skills in ways complementary to our typical arts and craft and storytime programming. And thus, the journey began. Today, Annabelle is going to share how she, as a children's librarian, uses gaming and translation to expand outreach and connection with immigrant patrons. Welcome, Annabelle. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's so good to have you on. Now, tell our listeners more about the work that you do for Oakland Public Library. Okay, so I've been a children's librarian here since about 2011. And Over the time, I primarily worked in immigrant communities here in the East Oakland area. Much of our population, they're Spanish speaking, either first or second generation immigrants. But what we've noticed was an influx of patrons who come from the Mayan mom community. So like from Guatemala, they were coming in too. So it was the first time where I was interacting with trilingual community. So instead of our default, like, English and Spanish stuff, we also had to think about like, oh, what about people who are learning Spanish? So a lot of my library services are grounded in like multilingual, multicultural approaches to where everybody will feel welcome. But currently my title is children's services vacancy support. So wherever there are long-term vacancies in our system, I just come in and I like keep it together before the next children's librarian comes up. So we're filling a lot of vacancies now. I'm hoping that, you know, my job will change. We'll see what will happen. Absolutely. If there's one thing librarians do, I think we both agree, is we know how to fill in where we can. So that's <laughs> yeah. great, especially when it comes to children's programming. Now, as I shared with the readers, you have a blog post, which I read on the Family Gamers blog. And we will leave that in the show notes for the listeners to read themselves. The blog piece spoke at length about using board game learning to connect with what's known as ELLs, English language learners who visit your library. How did this concept come to be? And I know you mentioned that your children in the intro, we mentioned about your child receiving a game. In addition to that, what inspired this concept for you? 
I get this question a lot, even from like the board game community. And when I think about it, that time in my life, I had started at Cesar Chavez branch, which is in Oakland here in the Fruitvale. It's very much like a Latino hub. And it's been that way for like decades. So I had started there right when my child was about preschool age. At that time, we moved to a city that was also circulating board games. Like we were there, like when they just started their inaugural collection. Mm -hmm. So we were discovering games in our personal life. I was working in this community and patrons were approaching me for like tutor help, but like we don't do that at our library right now. So the concept of like a reading buddy program was slowly getting worked in my head. And at the same time, my boss, he was getting approached for like, he called it the ESL club, but I think now it's like English language learners. Mm -hmm. So he wanted to do an English language conversation club. So we were both just like, okay, we have folks who want to practice their language skills. How are we going to tackle this? So as I was watching my child in any game we'd play, she'd like figure out a way to make it like a dramatic narrative. And so we were talking and storytelling like the whole time we were playing. But, you know, she was three or four at the time. So whether it was Candyland and her just acting it all out during the whole time, I was like, whoa, there's language there. There's colors, there's numbers, there's counting, there's taking turns. I was beginning to see board games as like it's this tiny box and it's this tiny space on a table. But you bring to it a whole world of like scenarios, implications, choices, decision making, you know, and for the little guys, like that's a big deal to decide, like, should I go this way? Should I go that way? Should I do something mean and get the person next to me? Right. And what I love about that particular location at Chavez was that no matter what language all the kids speak, like they will figure out a way to play. So we had this one game and I have it here. I pretty much always will have this game at any library I'm at. Like I had this thing that like dawned on me one day. I was watching kids play Zingo, which is basically like bingo. But there's a fun contraption that brings a little tiles out. And not only does the tile have like the image of maybe like a rabbit or a house or a cup, it also has the text as well. So the fact that it has a very clear image made it so one day I was watching these kids The way they were interacting was such where like the game was easy, but like a five to seven year old could teach the game to each other. So we had our English language learner who was actually learning English and Spanish because she had just come from Guatemala and was playing Uh with her cousin Mm -hmm. who speaks Spanish and English. The cousin ran into the classmate who's speaking English. So you have like three languages all at the table. The English speaker who's like from here can't speak mom, but they can all come together and play this one game because they could just do it totally language independent. The mom speaker was identifying things in her language. The Spanish speaker was identifying things in all three languages. And the English speaker was just saying things in like English. But the fact that they could all sit together for like 30 minutes and have fun with this, it like dawned on me like, okay, games are something that like brings people together. Yes, absolutely. And I love what you said about the storytelling element. It's funny because our last episode featuring Patch Casey, who is a student who uses storytelling as a way of therapy. And so I kind of see some parallels between the conversation I had with them and the conversation we're having now, where storytelling can be used as this element for connection and Mm -hmm. for education simultaneously. So that's what I really loved and why I wanted to have you on the show to talk about that because storytelling is such an effective tool. So I was exploring this with kids, right? And at the same time, in my same workplace, my boss was exploring this with adults. He was doing his ESL club, but he'd be confronted with people being shy about the language. So he was like, I need some icebreaker, something to get people 
to just talk because they're not going to learn if they're not talking. They're all here willingly ready to do conversation club, but they just couldn't get over that hump. So I knew about this game, Story Cubes. Have you heard about those? I have not. Oh, it's so easy. So all it is is like, these dice with different pictures on them and you just throw them. You could decide to play them anyway. So what he would do, we got the giant ones because we had some senior citizen patrons too. So for them to see the images. So he would hand out one to each person and they would roll the dice. It's like, it's a game. It feels silly. So they're not getting hung up on like, Oh, am I pronouncing this wrong? Like now they're just looking at the dynamics. They roll the dice. There's a picture. So somebody would start a story with, one day, somebody walked along the river. Then the next person rolls a dice. Then he'd add a memorization yeah. aspect to it. So slowly, like the six or so dice would be rolled and they'd all make a story together. And so even on like a grown-up level, like games can help to just make playing with language and having fun approachable. Yes. And it adds that creative element because I think the most impactful learning that comes for people of all ages starts with creativity. And there's nothing more creative, I think, than storytelling, because storytelling is something that can be done through board games. It can be done in therapy, like my last guest and I discussed. It can be done in a myriad of different ways through art. It doesn't necessarily have to come from a book. That's what I love about the game playing aspect is that storytelling and creativity can really facilitate learning, especially for those seeking to learn English as a second language. Very good. Yes. So now how can parents, guardians, or caregivers use some of your gaming techniques at home with their ELL family members? I want to explain this in a way because I get bogged down by the jargon around our field. Print motivation. Like (laughs) no one's thinking about that. No one's like sitting in the house like, how do I? Yeah, because our audience <laughs> is uh, library patrons. They're the people yeah. that you and I serve every day. So we'll break it down for them. Yeah, so I really have to unpack that. And I think, honestly, the first step, and even I do this like socially as well as professionally, but my first step is identifying do I just want to have fun? Or do I just want these kids to be friends with each other? Like, so what's my motivation for this dynamic? Is my motivation, I know that this kid struggles with their numbers. What kind of game can we play that will help them to like have fun with math? So what is your motivation? Do you want to practice math skills? Do you want to look at letters? Do you want to look at shapes, you know, for the little ones? Even for like age two or three, is your goal, we want to practice taking turns. Because that impulse control is like such a hard thing for younger ones. But even like when they go to preschool and kindergarten, like they're going to have to figure that out, too. So first identifying like what's your motivation and then looking for games that zero in on that. So one thing that helps me because I work with a mixed group, just whoever walks into the library, I might have a three year old who's going to play something with their 10-year-old sibling Mm -hmm. and like maybe the 17-year-old sibling will play as well. Right. So what's something that'll be approachable for all ages? And I think that that's key, because I think even when you have a group of folks who are all learning English and are all trying to understand those language dynamics, the different age groups bring different perspectives Mm -hmm. and can enhance storytelling. You know, a child can enhance a story in a way that maybe a senior citizen can't and vice versa. And so going beyond the demographic of language and getting into age and gender, I think can really enhance that activity as well. One thing I try to like downplay a bit is the competition aspect, because when I'm at work, I'll just say, you know, we're just having fun. 
maybe someone will win, whatever. We're just here to have fun. So like that way, the three-year-old can access the game on their level. Mm-hmm. And like the 10 and 17-year-old can do it their way. Sometimes I'll even just change up the whole layout of a game. And so like house yeah. rules is something I depend on. There's this one game we play that the kids really love called Go-Go Gelato. You match the different ice cream cones and the colors and you stack them all different ways, like cup stacking. But okay. another element is added to it. So then maybe I'll just set aside a little set for the younger child and then be like, hey, why don't you go through these five cards? And then the rest of the group is playing competitively. So Being flexible about the rules is one way I approach games, looking for language independent games. So like no matter what your literacy level is, like you'll still be able to play. That one's a tricky one because it does still depend on at least one person in the group being fluent enough to either read the instructions or to like do a Google search online for a video. So often I'll tell people that too, like if they look at a booklet of instructions and they're like, this is intimidating. I'm like, just Google how to play Sushi Go. You'll find something. Exactly. Making it as accessible to people as possible. And I love that you just mentioned the competition, the competitive aspect, because that's a great segue into what my next question was going to be. Coming back to your blog post, you differentiate between games that are competitive versus games with a more cooperative style. Mm-hmm. What are some tips for not only parents and guardians, but librarians themselves. We have several librarians who listen in on this podcast Mm -hmm. or game enthusiasts on how they can make gaming more inclusive and accessible to all and kind of making that differentiation between competition and cooperative game style. Okay, so I would say first you're assessing your group. Like we do talk about that and covering your motivation. So with sometimes with teenagers, they really want that competition. Like that's the thing that's going to like grab them right. and have them stick around, you know, because it's so easy for them to start a game and then be like, nah, I'm going to play Roblox. Right, especially teenagers. I have a teen and a tween myself. And when we play board games at home, when we have family game night, it's got to be like, monopoly or payday. It's got to be something that is competitive, especially to get my two kids to really get involved. So I definitely agree with that. So sometimes older kids like that. But when I do play with younger kids in a mixed group, if I get a sense that one of the kids is going to be someone who's basically going to rage when they lose, Mm -hmm. I might change the goals. So like there's some game we play in the gaming world. It's called a dexterity kind of game. So like mm-hmm. Jenga is one of those. You're doing a physical. Yeah, it's another one of the games we play in my family too. <laughs> yeah. So then I have one called Suspend. And all it is is a bunch of wires that are connected. And when you roll it, you have to take the wire that has the color that's shown on the dice and like add it to the structure. So instead of saying like, okay, whoever gets all of their set of colored wires on the structure first wins, I'll say as a team, We have to get all of these wires on here together. Totally changes the dynamic, right? Because now you're not going to put your wire down to mess the next person up. Mm -hmm. You're not going to hang it all wild so that theirs falls down when they add it. You're going to hang it in a way where like, how can I make this structure more stable? So like the whole team can keep building onto it. So just little things like that. There's also this game, Headbands, that one. Oh, we have that one too. Yeah, so that was like barely a game. But then sometimes I'll change the objective instead of whoever gets five wins. Like I'll say the whole team is going to have to get 20. Right. So that you're really like pushing for each other. You're trying to give them really good clues. Just being really loose with the rules really helps me. But yeah, sometimes kids just want to be mean to each other, right? Even like the little ones will do that. So there's this one (laughs) game I play that I love bringing out called Dirty Pig. 
and all it is is you're trying to wash people's pigs. <laughs> Keep your pig dirty. It could be played completely language independent. But when I notice there's even a little one, the parents really good natured about it. Like I'll show them this game. And I love seeing the look of glee in their face when they slap down their card and they say to their parents, I cleaned your pig. You know, the whole goal (laughs) is to have like three or five dirty pigs. Right. So keeping it fun, you know, and just really customizing it to your group. Because if you're going to get someone who loses and cries, that will like ruin the whole game night. Yeah. So it's really about identifying the motivation of the group and the Mm -hmm. participants, and then also finding a way to make it cooperative when it needs to be. But if you have an element of competition, instead of an individual one-on-one competition, make it a group competing against time or against some variable outside Mm -hmm. of the group. There's like so many co-op games, like the guy who did that game Pandemic, he's done Forbidden Island and Forbidden Desert. And those have been really approachable. And the theme in those is like Forbidden Island, you're trying to get the whole team off of the island well, you have to get some little treasures first because the whole island's sinking, right? right? So I love playing that with maybe age 10 and up. For a lot of the kids I play with, that's the first time they've ever played a co-op game. So like one where you have to talk to each other, like you have this tool, maybe you should give me this, or maybe you should move here to retrieve that. And then we could all get to the helicopter. Like, I love seeing that like collaboration just in this like 45 minute time span that the game takes. But then he also has this other game by Peaceable Kingdom called, well, now it's called Spaces Escape, but it used to be Mole Rats in Space. And all it is, your little mole rats and very similar concept. You're like getting little treasures, but the whole time you have to get snakes out of the spaceship. And then I always stress, and when I play this with families, especially when there's an older sibling and a younger sibling, I'm like, hey, on this one's turn, on the little one's turn, You guys all get to talk about it, but in the end, they get to decide. So that thing of like, this kid has autonomous choice. So it's a lesson for the older sibling often to be like, okay, I have to let my younger sibling like do things. I can't be doing everything for them. I can't boss them around. I have to trust their choices in this. Yes. And it empowers the younger sibling Mm -hmm. to have that autonomy too. That is great. And we're going to put some of these games in the show notes as well, because this has just been such an awesome conversation, Annabelle. I'm confident that our audience has gained some great information here. Now, tell us where our listeners can learn more about you, your work, and some of the resources that we've talked about today. Oh my goodness. So one podcast I love listening to, and I'm really glad when they asked me to post on their site because I listen to them weekly. So for folks who are gaming in this kind of way, who are gaming with families, either in schools or like recreation programs or in libraries, the Family Gamers podcast, like that's one that I subscribe to. And I try to stay up on that because they just happen to have a huge family. So they're Mm -hmm. playing with kids who are like preschool to teenage. And that's the blog where I read your blog piece. Yep, we'll have that link in the show notes for sure. I listen to them and then he doesn't post as much, but there used to be this podcast I'd follow called Board Gaming with Education. But he started as like an ESL teacher in China, I think, or in Taiwan. And he was utilizing board games in that way. But that's more of a structured thing. Like he had like students, adult students. But I do like listening to his for ideas on that. Where else could I be found? Twitter is just me going off sometimes. And sometimes it's not games. Sometimes it's just like pop culture stuff. But I'm at F-O-B board underscore game. Fresh off the board game. That's how I say it. 
All right. Well, we will put all that under the show notes. Again, Annabelle, thank you so much for joining us. This is Kelly, and this has been Love, Light, and Lit, the podcast presented by the North Liberty Library. Today, we had an awesome talk about gaming and connection with Annabelle Blackman. And we talked about using gaming to connect with English language learners. Please visit our website at northlibertylibrary.org for more information on any additional programming and services. Thanks for listening.